Let's start this episode with a line from the Anno Lied, the Song of Anno, that was written in 1080. Quote, Köln ist der Herristin Burge ein. End quote. Translated from Old High German, I believe it should mean Cologne is one of the most sublime cities. Cologne around the year 1100 is our topic in this episode. Cologne has taken advantage of its strategically favorable location on the Rhine and is an important trading hub for goods such as wine, spices, textiles and metals. This leads to the rapid rise of Cologne's craftsmen and merchants who for some time have been insisting on more rights vis-à-vis the city's ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne. Cologne's churches, especially the old Cologne Cathedral, were important pilgrimage destinations and contributed to the city's economic and cultural development. With its numerous places of worship, Cologne was an important spiritual center, with a strong presence of clergymen and monks. And with the Archbishop of Cologne as the city's ruler, Cologne has one of the most important imperial bishops in its midst, who played a major role in positively shaping the city's economic and political development. Let's take a closer look at all this. Literally, let's walk through Cologne of the year 1100 or around the year 1100 directly after the intro. Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany. This over 2,000 years old, but until it became what is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past, hence it can therefore be seen as a kind of microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our present time. But before we dive here into the topic, until around the year 1000, I had the problem to get historical sources and sufficient literature for this podcast. The availability of literature, historical sources and contributions about Cologne's history explodes now almost infinitively at uh, the year 1000. I must admit that it will hardly be possible for me as a one-man show here to sufficiently sift through everything that comes into question in the future, let alone present it to the history of this city. Here I tell you a coherent story, but without guarantee of completeness. You have to keep in mind that some people spent their entire professional lives researching a single topic or thematic area of Cologne's city history. I, on the other hand, usually plow through the respective thematic blocks of Cologne's history with an interval of only three weeks. Therefore, should I miss something now and then, I plan to deviate from the chronological presentation now and then in the future if I should discover something exciting afterwards, but don't worry, I do not plan to do that yet. Only as an option in the back of my mind, but there would be, for example, so much to tell about Cologne still. But back to the topic, Cologne around the year 1100. Before we start, I'll put a map on the homepage where you can see exactly which way we will be going. I can imagine all too well that someone who does not really know their way around Cologne could easily lose their bearings. So feel free to check it out while listening, as always, in the show notes or just visit thehistoryofcologne.com. 
We start as always in our walks in the north, in front of the city, but oops! Now in the year 1100 we are no longer outside the city as we would have been in Roman times. We are in the middle of the populated area. Cologne's population at this time already exceeded that in Roman times of only 15,000 inhabitants. Since the settlement area within the Roman wall was meanwhile probably completely in use, whether for agriculture or building, suburbs had developed in the west, south and also here in the north of the city. These suburbs in front of the city wall had been integrated into the city by the people of Cologne in the last episode by creating a total of more than three kilometers of new fortifications of ditches and earthen ramparts around them. However, only the immediate suburbs had been integrated. The settlements around the important Cologne monasteries such as St. Severin deep in the south or St. Gerion in the northwest of the city had not been incorporated in 1106. Not yet. That should happen in the near future. We will come to that in some episodes soon. In total, the city area had almost doubled in 1106. Roman Cologne city area had had about exactly one square kilometer or 1.6 square miles. With expansion to the east in late antiquity then around 1.2 square kilometers. Now the enclosed city area was about 2 square kilometers. For my American listeners, in Roman times Cologne had 250 acres, then in late antiquity 300 acres, and now in 1106 the city was around 500 acres. Big or large or whatever you call it that way. Compared to today, for large city of course a joke, but for then it was enough to be one of the largest cities in Europe north of the Alps. Niederich, as the once northern suburb of Cologne was called, covered up about half of the city area that was added in 1106. For those who come from Cologne or know their way around here, the following will be easier to understand, but also for those who don't know the place, I want to explain it as good as possible with the help of the map that I uh, mentioned in the intro. And as always, thanks to the Greven Digital Archive or Greven Digital Archive, translated in English, for providing me with the appropriate map material. The incorporation of Niederich meant that three big chunks of Cologne suburbs were integrated in the north to Cologne. Directly on the Rhine, for example, the quarter around St. Cunibert, the monastery church we already heard of earlier in this podcast. Then also the quarter around St. Ursula, the monastery church that we also talked about and about the legend of St. Ursula. And as well as the collegiate church of St. Andrew that is directly in front of the city wall in direct neighborhood to the Cologne Cathedral. So now you already know. What dominated this former northern suburb of Cologne called Niederich? Exactly, these three large monastery churches and their settlements around it. The Eigelstein quarter is not quite there yet, quasi only the half. Nowadays, the Eigelstein is a traditional and well known city quarter of Cologne's old town, but back then it was only half integrated to Cologne. The northern part of it had not been yet incorporated. This also meant that the impressive city gate 
called Eigelstein Torbook in German, which still exists today, by the way, and it's really impressive, does not yet exist yet in 1106. This would only happen in the aftermath of the next city expansion of 1180. What existed, however, was the old Eigelstein city gate, which was located at a passage in the wall of 1106. Quasi a good piece further south of the today's location of the Eigelstein city gate. If you want to visit the former location, the previous location of the Eigelstein city gate, it is best to stand at the road intersection of Eigelstein Straße slash Eintrachtstraße. Above all, the Eintrachtstraße street still follows the northern boundary course of 1106. And of course, nothing remains of the structure of the old Eigelstein gate here, as well as from the whole 1106 created ramparts made of wood and earth. It was gradually abandoned when the construction of an enlarged stone city wall began in 1180. To the church building standing here in the northern suburb of Niederich, like St. Ursula, St. Andrews, and St. Cunibert, I would not go further into detail here at this point for the time being. I am planning something of my own regarding this topic in the near future. From the former Roman North Gate, well known to us from earlier city walks, that is directly in front of Cologne Cathedral, the old Roman road leads north through this northern suburb called Niederich up to the old Eigelstein city gate. Many areas within this semicircular former suburb of Niederich, north of the old Roman city wall, may have been sparsely populated in that time still, but especially along this north-south main road leading from Cologne Cathedral through the former northern Roman gate up until the Eigelstein, there was a dense development along this particular road. This is also the case today if you follow this historic street which runs through today's Marzellenstraße and through the street called simply Eigelstein. To the west of the main street is the monastery church of St. Ursula, including the monastery itself, the associate buildings and extensive agricultural land. Unlike today, the monastery church of St. Ursula is not built up with houses in direct vicinity. On the contrary, Large agricultural areas are located around it. In the shadow of the ramparts created in 1106, there are vineyards owned by the local monastery of St. Ursula. South of the main road, a street leads us eastwards down to the Rhine called today Maccabeastrasse. Here a settlement had developed around the monastery church of St. Cunibert, built from 1130 as a three-aisled basilica, which lay directly on the Rhine and which was also part of Niederich, the once northern Cologne suburb. This important monastery had also been included in the enclosed city wall with the ramparts in 1106. Between St. Cunibert and the Eigelstein, however, there is also not really a dense settlement. Here too, there are still open spaces, and this would remain so in part into the 20th century. It's hard to believe nowadays when you consider that almost 4,000 people live in the Kunibert's quarter in that little, small, confined space today. We quicken our steps a bit, walk back to the main street through the Eigelstein quarter and head 
south directly into the area of the old Roman city, where we are greeted by the old cathedral after passing through the still existing Roman city wall. Cologne Cathedral, the old Cologne Cathedral, is in its architectural heyday during this period. The building dominates the entire northeast of the former Roman settlement area. A spacious atrium is located in front of its main entrance, a forecourt surrounded by columns. With a choir at each of its long ends, this basilica, this cathedral, was equipped in the spirit of the time. One choir was for St. Peter and the other for St. Mary. The nave has since grown to five naves in total, which is the main space in a church. In case you have forgotten the terminology concerning church architecture, I will provide a refresher on my homepage with a corresponding explanatory picture. Four transverse arms additionally widen the cathedral when we look at it. The great imperial cathedrals of the time, such as those along the Rhine in Worms and Speyer, took this Cologne, old Cologne Cathedral, as their model. To the east of the cathedral, facing the Rhine, stands now the monastic church of St. Maria at Grados. It has since been repaired after fire several years ago. Directly adjacent to the cathedral and Maria at Grados was the old Pfalz, the archbishop's palace. But then as now, Cologne is more than just the cathedral, so let's move on. South of the cathedral in St. Maria at Grados, a large square opens up in this actually narrow harbor district, the Altermarkt and the Heumarkt. So the old market and the haymarket you would translate it nowadays. Once the two neighboring squares have been a coherent single square. In the meantime, however, they have each become a separate square due to the insertion of a row of houses that was done here a short, a few decades before. Especially here live the merchants, the craftsmen and traders of the city. This is the clientele that was decisive for the events of 1074 and 1106. The two squares of Heumarkt and Altermarkt were first simply paved with gravel in the middle of the 10th century when they were created under Archbishop Bruno. But in 1082 and between 1104 and 1106, not only was the gravel layer on the square renewed, but wooden channels were also used to ensure adequate drainage. And that for a square like the Heumarkt that had 13,000 square meters at the time. However, at that time it was not called the Heumarkt or Haymarket at that time. Often it was simply called the market because up until now it was the only market square. By the way, I often translated the Heumarkt as Haymarket, but just for the record, hay was never the main commodity sold here. It is probable that the name is derived from the old German word Humen, so from swamp, which just indicates that one is here in a silted-up branch of the Rhine River, which is threatened by floods from time to time, but that might be the reason why it was called the Heumarkt, so the, the swamp market, so to speak. Exactly therefore, the people of Cologne had raised around 1100 again the place surface of the square around a hole of 40 centimeters. 
All of this, of course, required coordinated and well-concealed collaborative action within the urban community of Cologne. So much for the fact that the Middle Ages knew no large infrastructure projects. With the possible exception of castles, maybe. I wonder who paid for all of that. All the earth that was needed to raise it, the manpower that dragged it all here, it must have been, obviously, the Cologne merchants, who certainly took on a large part of the financing out of self-interest. That brings us to trade, a big topic for this episode. What did the merchants actually trade in Cologne? Who now hopes to get an exact list and data, I have to disappoint you. Up to modern times, this is hardly possible. There's not only a lack of sufficient historical sources, in addition it complicates the historian that until far into our modern times, there were umpteen different value and measurement units, which also changed frequently or differed regionally. As far as the quantity is concerned, I cannot offer much. What can be said, however, is what was traded. Cologne's long-distance trade network is now widespread. Here Cologne is the hub for goods from north to south across the Rhine or overland from east to west. Important is the trade with Italy, especially with the emerging cities like Florence, Milan and Venice. Here the Rhine can bring most of the distance as a waterway. From Basel in Switzerland, it was then necessary to travel overland across the Alps. Equally important was the trade with England, about which we must make a separate episode for a given occasion. Here Cologne also had access to the North Sea and to the English Channel via the Rhine and thus also to the mouth of the Thames. From 1130, the Cologne merchants were allowed to trade in London by personal encouragement of the English king, Henry II. From 1157, the Cologne merchants were even supposed to have the same rank as all French merchants. And I'm talking about Cologne merchants, not German merchants, only Cologne merchants. There would be so much to tell. For a longer time, the Cologne merchants were considered to be an integral part of the London city population. But as I said, we should treat that separately another time. Some of Cologne's most important trading partners around 1100 were the neighboring cities in the Rhineland, such as Aachen, Trier and Mainz, which were also important trading centers. With the rise of the Hanseatic League, the Baltic Sea was to be added to the list, as far as the Russian city of Novgorod. But Cologne itself was not just a transit point for international traders. Trade fairs were now held in Cologne three times a year, mostly on holidays like Easter. A fair at that time is not like today a huge complex of buildings like Gamescom or the E3 in Los Angeles. It is in Los Angeles, isn't it? No, uh, but, but a recurring event in which large markets were held. Trade is also significant in directly neighboring regions, which makes sense. In the last episode, we had experienced firsthand how this had influenced even the alliance policy of the inhabitants of Cologne. One had also sided with the old Emperor Henry IV for the reason that Duke Henry of Limburg was on the side of Henry IV. One did not want to anger the direct trading partner in the West in the present-day Dutch-Belgian border region, 
which controlled the trade routes to France and England. A historical source from the year 1103 shows that this was done with particular political instinct. There is a document from the Archbishop of Cologne, Frederick I, to merchants from Liège and Huy from the year 1103. So, Huy in today's Belgium and not the Huy in Saxony-Anhalt in Germany. The merchants of those two cities had probably complained to Cologne's city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne, but why actually? Of course it was about tax and customs duties, about which the merchants from Liège and Huy complained. Sorry, I think the word Huy is so funny. They saw this as a violation of old vested rights. The complaint was then brought to the attention of Frederick I in Cologne at the highest level by the then Bishop of Liège. The Bishopric of Liège, just as a small hint, was a subordinated suffragan bishopric to the Archbishopric of Cologne. Here, therefore, there was an exchange at the highest level within the Cologne church province. As so often in historically written sources, it is not the direct content that is interesting for us as posterity and historically interested people, but what else we can deduce from it. In itself, the document confirms the old rights of the two cities from the Meuse region, but for us, the source offers much more. For example, here in the document, the Schaffen are mentioned for the first time as originally an episcopal body for the city. The first time ever, Schaffen were lay jurors or judges, lay judges who work for the archbishop. But in the context of this source, it then also becomes apparent that the former court assistant, so to speak, had in the meantime, now in 1103, also taken on municipal tasks. Especially the flow of goods of the two cities from the Meuse region can be deduced, which does not give us a complete view of the flow of goods through and in Cologne at the beginning of the 12th century, but at least we get an insight into an otherwise still scarce source on this topic in Europe at all. Let's quote the source so that we can find out which way and with what the Liège and Huy merchants passed through Cologne. Quote, the merchants of Liège and Huy, when they bring their goods to Cologne by ship, wherever they come from and whatever goods they carry, pay no duty and no custom duty, provided the ship belongs to another. If it belongs to themselves, they pay 10 denarii. But if they sell tin, wool, bacon, fat, or what belongs to the scale, the seller gives nothing at all, but the buyer the custom duty. If they sell linen or woolen cloth, they may sell it either at one cubit or at half a cubit, or whatever measure they please. The same is true of other goods. However, they are allowed to do so only at the three fairs, namely Easter, the Feast of St. Peter's Chains, and the Feast of St. Severin. End quote. After that, many more provisions follow in the text, but we shall not be interested in that. What is interesting is what can be deduced from this. Goods such as tin, wool, bacon, and fat probably came across the Rhine from England to Cologne. Textiles, such as wool and linen, in turn probably came to Cologne from the city's own production in the Meuse region. 
The fact that wool and linen were only allowed to be sold at the three fairs in the year, happening namely at Easter and the other one beginning at the beginning of August and the other at the end of October, indicates a protectionist measure. Cologne was determined to protect its own domestic market and its own production of textiles that would become even more important in later times. This also shows that the Cologne merchants were already organized in some way and were also able to assert their own economic interests with the city ruler, the Archbishop of Cologne, who, after all, had the rights uh, and the power to impose taxes, everything else uh, according to that. The influence of the textile industry are even then immense in the year 1100, around the year 1100. When the city was expanded in 1106, the Duffelsbach, the creek which flows through Cologne from east to west into the Rhine River, could have been diverted, for example, to fill the new trenches in the south of the city to support the defense of the new southern city wall. But the dyers, part of the textile industry in Cologne, probably objected to this. The little creek remained in its bed, which it had been accustomed to since Roman times, and the dyers in today's Weizmarktviertel in the south of the old town between the southern Roman wall and the southern suburb of Oversburg around uh, the church of St. George that Anno II had founded did not have to move with their businesses to other places. Instead, the so-called creek gate was elaborately built to allow the creek to flow through the ramparts so that the dyes could continue their work as they always had. The creek gate was torn down in 1809 but the Duffelsbach, the creek, still flows in the same place today albeit nowadays canalized on the road surface. We could extract other aspects from this document but let's leave it at that and let's continue. <music> We can therefore already make cautious assumptions about the local produce in Cologne. For example, I mentioned the vineyards directly around St. Ursula here earlier. Wine, even here around 1100, was probably one of the most important or probably the most important trading goods that Cologne had to offer. Later, during the heyday of the Hanseatic League, Cologne was considered the wine house of the Hanseatic League. So significant was the wine trade for Europe, which was implemented in Cologne. Where did the need for wine come from? As in ancient times, wine was used as an everyday drink, heavily diluted with water. And as a city with umpteen churches and monasteries, there was also great demand for the grape juice from a liturgical point of view. And this was the case throughout whole Christian Europe, especially in places where there was little or no wine growing, and Cologne was always there to provide it to everywhere it was needed. So after leaving the old market and hay market behind us, we also find while we stroll through the quarter of the harbor, numerous wine taverns and pubs. Kölschbier, by the way, we find here in vain. That would only, and please hold on to your seats, become popular in the second half of the 20th century. Beer, in general, was not yet as popular around 1100 as it would be later in the Middle Ages. 
wine was definitely more popular and widespread. And in the coming episodes, in the course of this podcast, you will really learn that, how important it was for the people of Cologne. Until Napoleon's time, the Cologne wine trade remained significant, although no longer as strong as it would be in the late Middle Ages, but more about that in due course. We had already mentioned textile production and trade earlier. Already in Anno's time, in the 11th century, this was an important branch of Cologne's economy. At this time, around 1100, wool weaving was particularly prominent in Cologne. So powerful would the weavers become of Cologne over time that they would even turn Cologne's political life upside down from time to time. That fishing and trade with fish was important, I probably do not have to make too clear, where a city that lies direct on a river and has access through it to the North Sea. And, of course, from a Christian point of view, you also need fish when there are times where you're not allowed to eat meat. Interesting for Cologne, and I do not know whether this is not only Cologne-specific, is that the manufacturers of goods in Cologne also mostly then served also as traders of their respective products. That is, the boundary between the craftsmen and manufacturers on the one hand and the trader on the other hand were fluid here in Cologne. We could delve so much deeper into Cologne's economy, but let's move on for now. We walk back east to the center of the city. As we do so, we see St. Mary in the capital towering in the distance to our left. At that time, it already looks very similar to its present form. In the course of this century, further extensions were to be added, but we will deal with that in a separate episode, as I said. Here in the heart of the city, we see the Jewish Quarter, which had only been looted in the Crusader pogrom of 1096. Many of the inhabitants had been killed. But in the meantime, life is returning here. Jewish life is taking place here again, and soon one of the most flourishing Jewish communities in the empire was to exist here throughout the High Middle Ages. Probably around this time, we can already see St. Albans, south of the Jewish quarter, a three-aisled parish church for the surrounding and Christian inhabitants of the quarter. So not a monastery church like Great St. Martin, which is also nearby in the harbor district. Many new church buildings adorn Cologne cityscape right now. In the last hundred years, a first church-building boom had been recognizable, carried by the respective acting archbishop and his families. As you were allowed to experience also in the last episodes, again and again, like Pilgrim, Hammond II with Sister Ida, or quite prominently, of course, Anno II are to be mentioned here. This boom ended with Anno II, the last of the series of archbishops of Cologne who had devoted themselves to church building in the city. From now on, the archbishops of Cologne withdrew from church building in Cologne. In the meantime, as an equally powerful imperial prince, they had other things on their minds. The archbishops' own territorial policy was now more important. Time and money now flowed into this, rather into building churches. Our beloved Anno II was the crossroads who had still done both build churches and conduct military conflicts in the region. But this would not stop church building Cologne in the future, not at all, quite the opposite. Now rich inhabitants 
and the rich monasteries took over the task in the near future, and boy, they would accelerate everything that had been before. Even building the new Cologne Cathedral, our today's Cologne Cathedral, in 1248 would be largely been built on the initiative and with the money of the citizenry and the their living cathedral chapter. Archbishop Conrad of Hochstaden was actually only present at laying the foundation stone, but not really doing more than that. Leaving the Jewish quarter behind us, we continue west, away from the Rhine. So again, if you're lost, just look at the map that I provide for you on the homepage. We are now walking west, along the former east-west main street of Roman Cologne, today's Schildergasse. How it looked exactly here at that time in 1100, I could not find out unfortunately so far. While at the beginning of the 11th century, this area was still largely wasteland and, and undeveloped land with maybe some dilapidated Roman houses, a large square of 27,000 square meters now opens up to us here at the end of the Schildergasse Street, in the shadow of the Roman city wall. This makes it far larger this time than the two squares near the Rhine at Altamark and Heumark together. This is the so-called Neumarkt, the New Market. Today the usable area of the Neumarkt Square is significantly smaller due to the traffic around and above the square. Here the name says it all, Neumarkt, the New Market, because, drumroll, it is the New Market Square, newer than that of Heumarkt and Altermarkt. But what was the point of such a large square on the edge of what was then the western part of the city, especially so far away from the Rhine? The location had been chosen with care by Archbishop Hildolf in 1076. Large cattle markets took place here from now on after 1076. Everything was offered here that was considered livestock or breeding stock or even for slaughter. Horses, cattle, pigs, goats, sheep, elephants, um, no, wait a minute, last one, probably not, but... What a background noise that must have been with all those animals. That explains why this cattle market was on the outskirts of the city. And funnily enough, in terms of volume, the Neumarkt has hardly changed over the centuries, even if the history of its use has changed considerably. As a cattle market in the Middle Ages, as a square for Prussian soldiers to parade all day long, or as the starting point of the first organized carnival procession ever in 1823. And now as a traffic junction, which it is today. Unfortunately, like many large squares in Cologne, it is now only that, a big traffic junction without great residential attractiveness, lack of cleaning, and above all, with a lack of perceived safety. I don't mean to say that Neumarkt Square is unsafe, so I deliberately spoke of the concept of perceived safety meaning one's own subjectively assessed safety in certain places. But as you noticed, I digress. Let's go back in time to 1100. I would like to conclude our walk with the adjacent Griechenmarktviertel, which means translated Greek market quarter, 
which is located south of the Neumarkt Square. There are already in this time many of today's still known historic districts of Cologne, the quarter of Eigelstein we had mentioned here briefly in the beginning. We will also have to deal with all of these historical Cologne city quarters some point, but I didn't want to overload you with too much information. However, I choose this quarter in particular, the Griechenmarktviertel, the Greek market quarter deliberately. It lies in direct proximity to the Neumarkt Square in the southwest corner of the Roman city area. And it is in the direct vicinity of St. Pantaleon, the monastery church which, however, still lay outside the Roman city wall and was not included in the new ramparts in 1106. This was to be done only later. And here again my reminder, if that confuses you, look at the map, please. I find this quarter called Griechenmarktviertel, so Greek market quarter, interesting because there are certain attempts to explain why it is called that, several ones, and I would like to present them to you. First, the most popular assumption. Since we are in the immediate vicinity of St. Pantaleon and the last resting place of our beloved Greek empress Theophanu, it is assumed that Theophanu had her Greek craftsmen's artists and scientists settle here that she brought with her when she went to Germany, medieval Germany, with whose help the westwork part of the church of St. Pantaleon was built that you can still see today and which is really impressive. Go there, please, if you're ever in the area. So, meaning that this quarter was kind of a medieval convent garden like in today's London. But the other assumptions are also interesting as well. Another assumption is that not some Greeks lived here, but it comes from the word, the German word Krieg, which means war. And in Cologne, tongue, if you want to say Krieg, so war, you pronounce it a little cooler. You call it Krieg. So that sounds really similar to the German word for Greek, Griech. And thus sounds pretty much similar to the word Greek in German, Griech. But why would you call a quarter after war? Well, here in the 14th century, a bloody uprising of the already mentioned powerful textile weavers took place so that in the memory of this event, this war, the quarter got its name. In Kirch, by the way, the Cologne dialect, it is still called Griechmarkt today giving way to both meanings, Greek and war. It's hard to explain in English, I just noticed that, and it took me several attempts, I hope you understood what I meant. The third assumption is perhaps that even the Dutch word Krieg is significant here for, the, for naming this quarter. Dutch traders, because of the vicinity where a big part of Cologne's everyday life. So, similar to the English word creek, a stagnant body of water, which was here at that time, maybe, perhaps as an outlet of the Dufelsbach Creek, maybe that was the reason why the neighborhood got this name, Creek Quarter, so to speak. This, as I said, is the third assumption. And of course, there's a fourth, and luckily, a final assumption. Perhaps the old high German word Krieg, word for horse, which 
would also have a certain logic could be a reason for the name for this quarter because in the immediate vicinity was the large livestock market of the city with the Neumarkt Square. Over the centuries, no matter where the name now came from, people lived here in densely built conditions, many small medieval houses with much too narrow streets, until well into the 20th century, the medieval town here had hardly changed this medieval look. Thus, the grandparents of a former boss of mine lived in this neighborhood. Many greetings at this point. If you uh, are listening, I have no idea. I think you would rather listen to the German version. The dense development then became the quarter's undoing during the Second World War. Due to the dense development and the cramped conditions, it burned down completely as a result of the chimney effect caused by firebombs. Only one house survived the firestorm, a house from the 16th century, which nowadays looks like a foreign body in the whole neighborhood since the post-war development and the architecture here did not take into account the former narrow development. And there was no effort to reconstruct the historic um, quarter at all, no. Here are partly huge, really huge office buildings, a public swimming pool, the Agrippa Bath, uh, named after the Roman general, and modern apartment buildings. Then it was also separated by car traffic from historically grown adjacent old town districts when they built bigger and especially larger roads in post-war Cologne to create a so-called car-friendly city. I mentioned the Griechenmarkt Viertel, Greek market quarter here so explicitly because in my eyes it is a rather forgotten old town district. Feel free to drop by there. There is still a lot of history there and the only remaining pre-war house from the 16th century is really nice to look at. Of course, I will also post a picture of this uh, single house on the homepage and on social media these days. are not quite finished with our city walk through Cologne around 1100 or rather at the beginning of the 12th century yet. We have to leave out Obersburg for example, for the time being the southern suburb of Cologne which was also incorporated in 1106. We definitely have to make up for that but not next time because I would like to insert another topic here for the next time. Something completely different. What is Cologne known for? The cathedral? Yes, that's obvious. For the beer? Yes, that too. And when is this beer particularly consumed in Cologne? That's right, when it's carnival in Cologne. That's also the case in 2023, the year we are right now in while producing this episode. That's a special year, because this year the organized Cologne Cathedral celebrates its 200th anniversary. What that means exactly, because Carnival in Cologne is actually way older, you'll find out in the next episode, in an episode about the history of Cologne Carnival. And not in three weeks, as usual, but already in two weeks when this episode comes out. Because I would like the episode about the history of the 
Cologne Carnival to take place during Carnival Week, and not just afterwards when it's already Rose Monday. And Rose Monday, let me spoil you that, is now not so the day in Cologne where you listen in peace to a podcast, even if it's about Carnival. <laughs> Dear listener, I hope you enjoy the content of my podcast and find it informative and entertaining. I want to thank you for supporting my work and especially for investing your lifetime to listen to it. I want to make you aware of the possibility to support my work in another way, and that is by making a tip on PayPal or by following my podcast on Patreon.com. I would like to point out to you that this is not an obligation, but merely an opportunity for those who want to and feel able to do so. The point here is not to make a profit, but simply to support my work and allow me to continue producing quality content for you. Regardless, I am immensely grateful to you for supporting my podcast and I hope to continue to entertain you with stories about my hometown, Cologne. Literature that I used for this episode in the show notes. Thank you and until next time, auf Wiedersehen.